Well, we continue on this week from last, reading from Genesis, the story last week of Rebecca, and Rebecca comes back and uh, has two children, has twins. We'll talk about that. Paul in Romans 8, the beginning. Romans 8 is uh, certainly for biblical scholars and theologians, perhaps the centerpiece of the epistle to the Romans. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that, maybe from a slightly different vantage, but we'll continue in Romans uh, next week. And finally, in the gospel, the parable of the sower in Matthew's gospel and how we might understand, first of all, the interpretation of parables generally and uh, what is being gotten at uh, in today's gospel. So we have Rebecca, and it's a story like uh, Abraham and Sarah. She couldn't have children. She was not able to conceive until she was about 60 in the story. And so she became pregnant with twins. And it tells us in the story that the twins were very active in her womb. And uh, in the Hebrew text... The word that is used for this is they clashed in the womb. That's the word that is used in Hebrew. And so it's a precursor with regard to what we're going to be reading about uh, in the next couple of weeks. So uh, Rebecca has the kids. The first to come out is Esau. And Esau comes out, and he's very hairy, and he's red. He has red hair. Uh, we're going to use hear about the Edomites in the uh, moving forward, and uh, he he Edom means red. So Esau is red, and Jacob now comes out, but he has hold of Isaac's heel as he get as he comes out. And uh, Jacob, the two are born, and then we sort of fast forward. It turns out that Jacob is his mother's favorite. Jacob was a quiet boy. He liked to be in the tent with his mom. Esau was an active hunting, shooting, fishing guy who was out running around all the time and appears to be very impulsive and not too, doesn't have too much what we say these days, impulse control. So one day he comes in from the fields, and he's, he's famished, and uh, Jacob is cooking. And he's cooking something that Esau refers to as that red stuff, which is probably red lentil stew. So it's furthering this uh, Edomite theme that's running through, running through the story. And he's so hungry and unable to make distinctions or think clearly, apparently, that he uh, tells Jacob that he will sell... uh, Jacob says, why don't you sell me your birthright and I'll give you some of this stew. So he says, well, what use is the birthright to me? Sure, you can have it. Give me the red stuff. So he eats the stew. Now, the word for Jacob uh, also means or means moral innocence. So I used to take that in interpretation. A person maybe is guileless or, uh, you know, not credulous in some way. But, you know, moral innocence could also stand for somebody who has absolutely no moral center at all. None. 
And we're going to see as we read the story that Jacob is a very smart guy and he doesn't really have much of a moral center. Because next week he's going to trick his grandfather into, or his, into leaving him his, the inheritance. Why are we reading this and what it's about? Well, there are two reasons. One is that uh, the stories we're reading now in the green season are exposing us to this great grand narrative that we read in the Hebrew Bible. One of the best types of Sunday school teaching is not some uh, theological stuff about what it is that we believe in our particular branch of Christianity, but it's telling the kids the stories so they remember the Bible stories and they understand what the Bible says in the Old Testament and what Jesus speaks about and says in the Gospels and what it is that those are the great governing stories for us. And so we're reading through those stories for that reason and we're also getting some idea of the great story, the big sprawling narrative as I read about in some commentary not too long ago. It's also a story about how Israel came into being and it's a story about the nations, the others, how they came into being and how that happened and why it's important in that sense. And these stories are also important because they give us some idea of how God works through all kinds of people. God doesn't work through people who are uh, perfect. God works through people maybe who are morally innocent and gives us some way to understand how maybe uh, we get back on track, live a life more congruent with God's purposes. And God will use Jacob and Esau uh, for his purposes in the history of Israel. And we'll read more about that uh, later, next week and probably the week after. Paul, today, uh, the thing that I'm the most interested in talking about are not the, all this tight reasoning about the law and uh, grace and all those things that we talk about in, in uh, theology. You know, I, I was reading to prepare this sermon this week and the, the writer said, we have to stop using 19th century answers for 16th century questions. We need to cut this out. And we need to start uh, asking 21st century questions for, or using 21st century answers to answer 1st century questions. So there's a lot of work being done about Paul now that is uh, trying to situate him in his in his world. So remember what we've talked about the last two or three weeks. Your worldview is what you look through, like your glasses. It's not what you're looking at. It's what you're looking through. And Paul, in his process of conversion, uh, was struck blind and he fell off his donkey or whatever happened and he broke his spectacles. He shattered his worldview. And now he's got to put his spectacles back together and make sense of the transformation he has experienced of his experience of Jesus Christ.
And how does this fit in with his own worldview, his own thought, thought world as a pious Jew? What does this mean? And what conclusions are we supposed to draw? Well, one of the things that he's concerned about is how do we understand the relationship between the flesh and the spirit? There's always been a part of Christianity that some of it is veered off into what we used to call heresy. But it has to do with the fact that the material world, the physical world, is evil and the spiritual world is not, is divine, the unseen world. So we make this kind of dichotomy between the two things. Well, Paul, when he speaks of the material world or the flesh, he's speaking of all things that are predisposed to turn in on ourselves and away from God. He's not speaking about the physical material world as being evil because he believed that was the location for how we worked out the way in which we understood God's part in our life and in our community. And when he talks about the spirit, he means all of those things in our emotional, spiritual, and mental states that have now predisposed us to turn towards God. He uses some sacramental language occasionally when he speaks about this being affected by baptism and that what we receive at our baptism is the spirit of God, God coming in an inward way to enlighten and strengthen us. So Paul is speaking about being in Christ and that enabling each of us now to turn towards God and not away from God. It's not a very easy thing to do uh, in this culture. It's never been easy to do in any culture, but I'll talk about that in a minute. In the Gospel from Matthew, uh, we have this parable of the sower, which is very famous. Uh, Mother McNeil said to me before I pre preached my sermon at nine that this particular parable, the parable of the sower from Matthew, is one of the first passages in the gospel that was translated into Old English in about the 700s. So it indicates that for that, that listening audience, this was a well-known parable that they... Uh, translated into English because people would understand it and know uh, something about what it meant. But here's what we need to always keep in mind when we, talk, when we think about the parables. We're going to be reading some now moving forward with Matthew in the Sundays to come. We have to consider three things always. What did Jesus mean when he spoke the parable? What did the early church who heard it and wrote it down mean when they use the parable? And finally, what does the parable mean for the Christian community today? Does it have any help at all or no? How do we understand what that means? So in Matthew's gospel, this is why biblical criticism occasionally comes in handy. The first section of this particular uh, gospel through chapter, uh, through verse 9 are the authentic words of Jesus. He spoke these. And the balance of the parable is Matthew's interpretation of the parable. Because by the time we are now writing the gospel, we're what? About 40 years out 
from the Christ event. Matthew and Luke were written about 85, so 50 years later. And the community that is taking this parable and seeing if it is of use and wishing to reproduce it uh, from the oral state into a written state are coming to grips with how do we interpret what it means. So being faithful to what Jesus says, they then look at their own experience as the Matthean church. Keep that on ice, you'll amaze your friends. The Matthean church, and how do we understand it? Jesus, in his own earthly ministry, went through a process of great success and then a lot of pushback, a lot of criticism. His friends desert him. There are things that are going on, and then some of what was said before bears fruit. And so the Matthean church says, you know what? We understand and see in this our own experience and all of the struggles that we're going through now to understand what the saving work of Jesus Christ means for us in 85, the good news in 85 AD. How do we understand what that means? So when we read the parable, we need to think about some things like, what does it mean to uh, bear fruit? How do we understand the fickle nature of human beings? You know, it's tough in every age. It's always been. We're in a culture now with special challenges, and we're in a, a culture that, might, that is called by people who are interested in this post-modernity. And post-modernity is a lot different than modernity. There are lots of people in this country and in other parts of the world who are living in modernity. But the thing has changed. And there's a circumstance now where, for example, Charles Taylor, the great Canadian philosopher, wrote a big book. I'm not recommending that you read this book. It's called A Secular Age. And in it, he says... Uh, we now have a, a world where people believe an, in an immediate, significant, full life without transcendence or eternity. It is not necessary. It's also one of the reasons we have a lot of trouble with evil. So when I finish Andrew Del Banco's book, I'll say more about this, but he says in his introduction that uh, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. And the reason for that is that if we believe everything has a natural cause, we don't have any room for evil. If it can't be explained through natural causes. So when we see evil in the world, when we see the Holocaust, when we see these serial killers, when we see all of the things that over the last 70 years in this culture and in the West that have happened, natural causes don't, do the, don't explain it. It's wearing thin. And so you and I have to begin to see how uh, we hold in tension some of these natural explanations which are helpful and useful, but to understand that there may be some forces at work in the cosmos that uh, we need to find a language for again and what it might mean.
One of the problems is that if you admit there's evil, then you also have to admit there's God, right? Because if you believe in God, I know a lot of people, they tell me they believe in God, but they don't believe in evil. Well, you can't see God either. So how do you hold those two things in tension? And in the gospel for today, it talks a little bit about one of the ways to do that is uh, through perseverance. This week, uh, think about how you might understand uh, the way in which you as part of an, uh, a necessary part of God's plan for the cosmos uh, are able to work are able to understand how God works with complex people. That's another thing I need to say. Do, do any of you believe yourself to be simple? In this culture? In urban culture? Do you think that you're simple? Most of us don't. We think we're nuanced. We're very sophisticated. So... We ha I believe that God works through us even though we think we're pretty sophisticated. Furthermore, it is a prejudice that I hold, and that is the Christian message needs to come to urban centers. We don't need to do this anymore where we have more plants than people. And there are parts of the United States that are like this which seem way different than the postmodern world in which we find ourselves. But the history of Christianity has always been that people in the urban centers, sophisticated people, well-educated people, uh, become Christians and understand how they can transform the world. That's the mission field. It isn't, you know, Paducah, Kentucky. Art Feather isn't here, is he? No. <laughs> but the fact, the fact of the matter is that, you know, we get focused on this stuff and so forth. So it can be made in some of those places to appear as though nothing has changed. And we need to do a big rethink on how we understand the sowing of the seeds and what they mean. Anybody who's been in the helping professions or in any line of work that requires people's uh, voluntary commitment understands that people can get extremely enthusiastic about something and then leave because a better offer has come along. And that's the, the age in which we live. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to get people to set dates for meetings? Right? Or even social engagements. Because I always have the idea that somebody is just waiting to see if they get a better offer. So they don't tell, tell you whether or not they can come or do this. You know. It's become, and I think the reason is, is that there is so much choice that we have no choice at all. We don't know what to do. So when we think about the scattering of seeds, maybe it also has something to do with uh, where they land and our critical powers to see that and what can we do about it. Think about it this week. Amen.